0: God is the one who gives life, but He also takes it away. Often lives are taken without an explanation. This is one of the most difficult issues we as humans have to face. What's the best way to respond? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and Internet program with Dr. Philip Riken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in an expositional study in the life of Elijah, In today's passage, we see that God gives life, sustains it, but also takes it away. We'll also see that God is the God of resurrection. And today we'll learn about the resurrection of a poor widow's son. Phil, in today's message, you mentioned something called a Monroe Doctrine. Can you explain what that means to our listeners?
1: Well, Mark, it's something that comes from that uh, well known theologian, Marilyn Monroe, who on one occasion said, I just believe everything a little bit. What a profound commentary on the theology and spirituality of our times. When people do believe perhaps some biblical ideas, but they believe a little bit of this, a little bit of that, they're making up their own religion as they go along. And that's exactly what Elijah was dealing with in his times. Because some people still believed in the God of Israel, they just wanted to add all of the other pagan gods to their religion of the true God of Israel. They were believing everything a little
0: bit. Well, you know that uh, Elijah faces crises from time to time in God's word. What crisis is Elijah facing in this passage today?
1: Well, it's a very sad and tragic situation. It's the death of the widow's son, that widow who had so graciously been provided for by the Lord. And she comes accusing Elijah of having done something against her. And Elijah sees that this is a perfect opportunity for God to demonstrate his saving power. And he cries out to God for life and for life after death. And God proves himself in this passage to be the God of the resurrection. And this is one of those great passages in the Old Testament that's really pointing us forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was not only crucified, but rose from the dead with life for everyone who believes in Him.
0: Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to First Kings chapter 17, verse 17, and listen to God's Word for us today.
1: I wonder if you are familiar with the theological principle known as the Monroe Doctrine. The movie star Marilyn Monroe was once asked if she believed in God, and she said, Oh, I believe in everything a little bit. I call that the Monroe Doctrine, the doctrine that as long as you believe a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you'll be okay in the end. It seems to me that the Monroe Doctrine is now the basic religious principle of American culture. We do not want to be intolerant, so we believe everything a little bit. Majority of Americans do believe in God and they believe in the Bible and they believe in Jesus and they believe in the power of positive thinking. They believe that man is basically good. They believe that there are many roads to one God. They believe in alien life forms. They believe that it's a good idea to check your horoscope every day. The only way you can believe all of those things at the same time is if you adhere to the Monroe Doctrine. If you believe in everything, a little bit. Now, the Monroe Doctrine is exactly what Elijah was up against. He lived in a nation that had ceased to believe that the Lord God is the one and only living God. They had forgotten that there is no God but God. They no longer said, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Instead, they believed in everything a little bit. They liked to mix a little bit of Baal worship and a little bit of goddess worship in with their worship of the Lord God of Israel. That is why First Kings 17 has such relevance for us today. It speaks to the religious pluralism of our day, just as it spoke to the religious pluralism of Elijah's day. The whole point of Elijah's ministry was to refute the Monroe Doctrine, The entire burden of his preaching and teaching was to demonstrate that there is only one God, the God of the Bible. Now, what have we learned about that one God from Elijah so far? If you think about it, we have learned almost everything that we need to know about God. 1 Kings 17 is like God 101. It is a complete course in the character and work of Almighty God. God. If you want to know who God is and what God does, all you need to do is read this chapter. It reveals the character of God. We won't take the time to review everything that we learn from this chapter about the character of God. But we learn that God hates sin, that he judges sinners justly. We learn that he keeps his promises, that he has mercy on the needy. We learn that he loves the widow and the fatherless, that he adopts aliens into his own family. God is holy and just, loving and merciful. That is who God is. This chapter also tells us what God does. It reveals three great works of God. It reveals God's work of creation. First of all, verse 1, the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one who sends the rain in its season or causes drought to fall upon the land. He is the Lord of creation. He rules and governs the elements of the natural world because he made them. In the second place, it demonstrates God's work of providence. In verses 2 through 6, God provides everything that Elijah needs. He gives him a safe place to live and bread and meat to eat every day, twice a day. Then in verses 7 through 16, God provides everything that the widow of Zarephath needs, she and her son and Elijah. The jar of flour is not used up and the jug of oil does not run dry because God gives them daily bread. Then in the last eight verses of the chapter to which we turn this morning, we see God's work of redemption. God brings the widow's son from death into life. And he brings the widow herself from disbelief to saving faith. God demonstrates that he is the Lord of life, the God of the resurrection. So you have creation, providence, and redemption. 1 Kings 17 introduces three great works of God, and together they comprise a proof for the godness of God. They show that God is really God with a capital G. Only God can make the world. Only God can give daily bread. Only God can bring the dead back to life. And there is a sense as we come to these last verses of the chapter that we have reached the climax of the argument for the godness of God. Elijah carries this boy down from the roof of the house and he says, look, your son is alive. The resurrection of the body of the widow's son gives the strongest proof of the deity of God. It clinches the argument By the time we get to the end of 1 Kings 17, we have been fully introduced to God, the one and the only. That is where I wanted to begin, because God is really the main character of this chapter, and it's easy to forget that. God is the hero. God is the protagonist. The sermons we have been having from 1 Kings 17 are not sermons about Elijah. They are sermons drawn from the life of Elijah, but they are about God, the living God. Now, one of the ways we meet God is through the lives of the biblical saints. There is something for us to learn about God's relationship with us from each one of the characters in this history. There is the widow's son, first of all, who moves from death to life. And we do not know anything about this boy's spiritual condition. We do not know if he had come to trust in the Lord, the God of Israel. We only know that some time after Elijah came to his house, the boy became ill. He grew worse and worse, the scripture says, and finally stopped breathing. And it is apparent from the words of Scripture that this boy was actually dead, not almost dead or mostly dead. Both his mother and his pastor testify in this chapter that he is dead. And it is not until after Elijah prays for him that the boy's life returns to him. The sickness and death of this boy remind us of the frailty of human existence. Every one of us is subject to sickness and to death, and we run the whole race of our lives knowing that death is waiting for us at the finish line. All humans are mortal. Every week of the year, some member or another of this congregation hears news of the death of a friend or a family member. Every week, some of us grieve afresh over the loss of some loved one in the weeks or months or years past. Sin has entered our world, and with sin, death. But this story is not about death. It is about the power of God over death. And what is surprising is that we are still in the Old Testament. We know about the power of God over death from the New Testament. We know that the power of God over death was demonstrated once and for all in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We know all about that from the New Testament, but here the power of God over death is revealed already in the Old Testament. It is almost as if God could not contain himself as if he could not hold back his power over death, as if he could not hold back his compassion for the grieving, as if he could not hold back his joy in bringing the dead back to life. God interrupted the reign of death by giving life to this boy, as if to say, "'See, I am the God of resurrection.'" The resurrection of the widow's son in Zarephath was one of those events in the Old Testament that pointed the people of God forward to Jesus Christ. And what it pointed towards was the resurrection power of God that was revealed in and through Jesus Christ, the resurrection power that raised the son of the widow of Nain, the resurrection power that raised Lazarus, the resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ himself up from the dead. And not only that, but this chapter points forward towards the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the life of every believer. Every one of us has been born in sin, and because of that, every one of us is subject to death because of sin. But everyone who knows God and has faith in Jesus Christ has crossed over from death to spiritual life. As for you, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. If you know Christ, that new life you have in Christ is life eternal, You will die a physical death as the widow's son did, but you will not die a permanent death. The body that dies will be raised again into everlasting life. Now, if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are still, as the scripture says, dead in your transgressions and sins. You are spiritually dead. And once you die a physical death, you will enter into eternal death. The God of heaven and earth, the God who alone has power over death, offers you life, eternal life. But you will not get it by believing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You must give your whole self over to God in Jesus Christ. Only then will you pass like this widow's son from death into life. Now, what about the widow herself? God's resurrection power brings her from disbelief into faith. I'm using the word disbelief on purpose rather than the word unbelief. An unbeliever is someone who has not yet put their faith in God. And I am not sure that this widow was an unbeliever, Remember, she had received the miraculous grace of God, even though she was down to her last meal, even though she was an alien outside the family of God, God had sent his prophet to her to save her from starvation. And she did have, you may remember, some faith in God. Back in verse 15, she trusted in the word of God and she gave Elijah the main course of her last meal, trusting that God would give her daily bread. But you see, the troubles of life have made a disbeliever out of her. The widow was in disbelief about the goodness of God. She knew something of the grace of God, but she did not have the spiritual resources to cope with the death of her son. She was filled with grief and resentment. When he died, she found that he had Little faith or none at all. She had enough faith for the good times, but not for the bad times, and that is not hard for us to understand, not hard for us to pity. This poor woman lost everything when she lost her son. She lost her closest companion and her only family member, and all of her security for her old age. A.W. Pink observes that in him, all her affections were centered, and with his death, all her hopes were destroyed. The widow's suffering was the kind of suffering depicted in a painting that was put on display last week at the Pittsburgh City County Building. It is entitled The Marcus Pieta, and it was painted by James Douglas Adams. The painting depicts a single woman holding her son, in one arm, and he is wearing a team jacket and baggy trousers and Velcro sneakers. He has been shot dead. The woman's other arm is extended, palm outstretched, pleading perhaps for the mercy of God. Like the widow of Zarephath, the woman in the painting seems to be in disbelief. It is partly because... It all happened so suddenly for both of these women. Just when life seemed to be working out for once, just when she had been delivered from starvation, the only son is taken from a single mother. Things had gone from bad to better to much worse. And so it is not hard to have some pity for this woman I suppose that many of you have had similar experiences. You have had some trouble in life and you have been delivered by the grace of God only to be overwhelmed when trouble strikes again. And the fact that you have been delivered once before makes that new trouble so much more difficult to endure. You have already learned all of the lessons you would like to learn from your suffering and frankly, you're not sure you can take much more. You have not lost your faith if you believe in Christ, but you may be in disbelief about the ways of God. Now, before we see what can transform that kind of disbelief into strong faith, we need to notice one further detail in the widow's lament Because she is in disbelief, she lashes out against Elijah, verse 18. What have you against me? What do you have against me, man of God? Elijah has worn out his welcome. The widow doesn't like God's message, and so she is blaming God's messenger. Although her complaint is really with God, Elijah is close at hand, and so she directs her anger at him And what she says is very curious because we can tell from what she says that she has some consciousness of her own sin. Did you come to remind me of my sin, she asks. Now that is a remarkable thing to say at such a time. Her suffering has convicted her of her sin. And we do not know how that came about. Elijah may have taught the widow and her son from the scriptures, He may have led them in daily devotions after their daily meal. He may have explained to them that he was the one who had prayed down the drought that was punishing God's people for their sins. He may have quoted Deuteronomy 18, 19 to them, "'If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account.'" Elijah simply may have led a life of such singular godliness, that having him in your home induced a proper fear of God. In any case, the widow had learned some of God's requirements for holy living, and she recognized that she was falling well short of God's perfect standard. She had seen the power of God before, and now she was frightened by it because of her sin. And furthermore, she knew that there was some connection between sin and death she knew that the wages of sin is death she knew that human mortality springs from human depravity the widow had a guilty conscience and she saw the death of her son as god's punishment for her sins so she started to do the kinds of things that people do when they have guilty consciences what she should have done is repented for her sins instead She shifted the blame from herself to Elijah, and she tried to get as far away from God as possible. Why did you come here? Why have you done this? She says, why have you brought me to God's attention? Now You may be able to recognize some aspect of your own spiritual condition in the widow of Zarephath this morning. Perhaps you have experienced the grace of God like she did. Perhaps you are in disbelief that God would allow you to have as much trouble as he has allowed. Perhaps you have some sense of your own unworthiness because of your sin before God, like this widow had. If that's the case, then you need to see how she passed from her disbelief and her fear into faith in God. What made the difference for her very simply was a personal encounter with the resurrection power of God. See what the widow says when Elijah places her living son back into her arms. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now she knows. Now she believes. Now she trusts. It was not until she held her living breathing sun in her arms that she came to a firm conviction of the truth of God. The widow of Zarephath shows us that faith in the living God is grounded in the facticity of the resurrection of the body. Belief in the resurrection of the body is not just for super Christians. It is the foundation for true Christian faith. Resurrection is the proof of all the promises of God. We saw the same thing in the passage we read at the beginning of this service, Luke 7, verses 11 to 16. And in that episode from the Gospels, Jesus went to the town of Nain, and as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The connections between the widow of Zarephath and the widow of Nain are obvious. They were both widows, They had both lost their only sons, and they were both grief-stricken. And then they were both witnesses to the same miracle. Their sons were returned to them by the power of God. But look at this. See what happens next in Luke chapter 7. See how the people of God respond to the resurrection by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. You see, it is the resurrection power of God that confirms for them the word of God, that brings them to faith in Jesus Christ. Believing Thomas learned the same thing when he saw the risen Christ. John chapter 20. Thomas, you may remember, said that he would not put his faith in Christ unless he could see him with his own eyes and touch him with his own hands. When Jesus appeared to Thomas, what did he show him? He showed him his resurrection body. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He said that because a personal encounter with the resurrection power of God brought him to faith in the risen Christ. I was reminded of the necessity of the resurrection for Christian faith in the week before Easter Sunday, when I attended a Bible study for Center City Pastors. Most of the pastors were liberal in their theology, and there was a palpable sense of uneasiness among them on that day. Several spoke of the here-we-go-again feeling that they have every year at Easter time, especially on that Saturday night before the Sunday morning of Easter. It was not until after I left the Bible study that I was able to put my finger on the source of their discomfort They were trying to work up from within themselves the faith to actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they weren't sure that they could do it again this year. But you see, believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an annual event for the Christian. It is a daily reality. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the last step In the Christian pilgrimage. It is the very first step. Christian faith begins at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And if you have not yet come to an absolute certainty about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are not yet a Christian. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and if you believe that, you have eternal life. And furthermore, if you believe that, then you know the power and the goodness of God, and you can trust him in your present trouble, whatever that trouble may be. Now, if you want an example of a man with faith in the resurrection power of God, then look no further than the man Elijah, who moves in this passage, I think, from question to prayer. Elijah does have his questions for God. Everything seemed to be going well for him. He was getting one square meal a day. He was renting a nice little loft in Zarephath, and then his landlady comes to him with her dead son and her accusation. When she speaks in verse 18, she accuses Elijah of pastoral malpractice. What have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Elijah only had a congregation of two, I suppose three if you count Elijah himself. And now one of his parishioners is dead and the other one is attacking his ministry. There she stands holding her dead son in her arms, accusing Elijah of homicide But Elijah does not defend his ministry. Notice his remarkable restraint in the face of opposition. He does not explain why her accusations are unjust. He does not blame her for her sins. He does not give her his regular lecture about why bad things happen to good people. Instead, he gives her the soft answer that turns away wrath. Give me your son. He says, Elijah's grace under pressure is a strong testimony to the quality of his spiritual life. Elijah was as godly in private as he was in public. He was as godly at home as he was at church. When we study 1 Kings 18, we will see that Elijah's faith is strong enough to turn a whole nation back to God. And faithfulness in that great thing was built on faithfulness in the little things of daily life. In his portrait of Elijah, F.B. Meyer observes that we need more of this practical godliness. Many deceive themselves. They go to fervid meetings and profess that they have placed all upon the altar. They speak as if they were indeed filled with the Holy Ghost. But when they return to their homes, the least friction or interference with their plans or mistake on the part of others or angry outburst arouses a sudden and violent manifestation of temper. Now, what is Elijah's secret? Many of us need to learn the same secret as well. His secret is that he takes his problems right to the Lord Elijah took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord. When Elijah had trouble, he went to be alone with his Lord. And he did not hesitate to bring all his troubles and all his questions and all his anxieties before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Elijah does not seem to understand the Lord's purposes any more than the widow does. I suppose that is often the case with ministers. They don't have the answers any more than you do. And yet Elijah's godliness is revealed in this, that he took his questions to his Lord And once he had done that, once he had poured out his heart to God, Elijah prayed to God in faith. When we began our studies on Elijah, we learned from James chapter 5 that Elijah is the prime example of how the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And once again, this morning, Elijah is schooling us on the power of prayer In his exposition of this passage, A.W. Pink draws no less than seven spiritual lessons from Elijah's prayer. Perhaps I should warn those of you who are note takers that you won't have time to take all of these down. First, Elijah's retiring to his own private chamber that he might be alone with God. Second, his fervency, he cried unto the Lord, no mere lip service was this. Third, his reliance upon his own personal interest in the Lord, avowing his covenant relationship, O Lord, my God. Fourth, his encouraging himself in God's attributes. Here, the divine sovereignty and supremacy, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow? Fifth, his earnestness and Importunity, evidenced by his stretching himself upon the child no less than three times. Sixth, his appeal to God's tender mercy, the widow with whom I sojourn. Finally, the definiteness of his petition. Let this child's soul come into him again. Now, all of those are valuable lessons, but... The most outstanding thing about Elijah's prayer is that he prayed in faith. Recognize that Elijah was praying for something he had never experienced before. Just think about that for a moment. As far as we know, Elijah had never witnessed a resurrection before. In fact, this is the first resurrection recorded in all of Scripture, and it is very likely the first Resurrection in the whole history of the human race. Elijah had no example of resurrection upon which to base his prayer. Yet because he knew the power of God, he prayed with resurrection faith and his prayers were answered. Even his posture for prayer was an act of faith. According to the Levitical laws, it was unlawful and impure for a holy man to touch a corpse. And yet Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times. It was not his touch that raised that boy. The power of God gave life. But Elijah's touch was an act of faith, faith that God could make the unclean clean and the dead live again. It was by faith, by Elijah's faith, that the widow received her son back from the dead. If you have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you believe that God is not dead but alive, then you should pray like Elijah prayed. Ask God for the vision to pray for spiritual blessings far beyond anything you have ever experienced before. Pray the way Elijah prayed about your own troubles, that God would deliver you in ways that you cannot even anticipate. Pray the same way for the church. Pray for the things that are not, with the confidence that God can bring them to be. Pray for unimaginable spiritual blessings to be poured out on this church and on this city. The one and only God who has the power to bring the dead back to life can answer those prayers. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the encouragement of being reminded of the power that you have even over death. And we know that because of your power over death, you have power over all things. We ask that you would turn our hearts from disbelief into strong faith, that you would teach us how to pray like Elijah prayed with that same strong faith in the resurrection power you revealed in Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.
0: You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.